This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. Remember, tonight at 6 p.m. at the Ferndale Public Library, we're going to continue our conversation about Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, which is the featured text of our WDET book club this year. Uh, We're going to talk with ACLU investigative reporter Kurt Guyette and Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash about their roles in telling the story about the Flint water crisis and responding to the many water issues and infrastructure issues that affect uh, our access to clean water today. So uh, it should be a really interesting conversation, and we would love if you joined us in Ferndale tonight at the Public Library at 6 p.m. Okay, it has been over five years since we first heard that there was lead poisoning in the water in Flint. Uh, Dr. Monahanna Atisha, uh, the Flint pediatrician who first brought this to public attention, is, of course, the subject of our WDET book club. But there are also a lot of organizations and foundations across the globe that reached out to assist Flint in what became this nationwide headline. And there was a local organization that was already on the ground making sure residents had what they needed. Our next guest is one of the key figures in the Flint water crisis. He helped prepare and plan with Dr. Mona. He is United Way of Genesee County CEO, Jamie Gaskin, and I'm glad to welcome to the studio here on Detroit Today. It's nice to see you here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so let's start with the, the, just the, the, the role of the United Way in yeah. Genesee County and how this incredible public health crisis would have challenged uh, an organization that's dedicated to, to trying to improve the quality of life for people in that uh, in that county. Well, I mean, I will tell you the the water crisis certainly almost took over our entire organization's focus um, at as it developed. Um, but prior to uh, really Dr. Mona's revelations, we were dealing with uh, a water affordability crisis, um, much like I think is challenging here in Detroit. We had hundreds and hundreds of shutoffs, uh, water that was very, very expensive, and we were really working with community to try and assist with water bills at scale um, so people could afford what they had. And then sort of uh, this this big issue, once the water was switched to the river, really emerged. And, and Dr. Mona was, uh, um, uh, when she shared with our health coalition that I sit on, uh, the information that that same, you know, that group, uh, which included uh, uh, both political leaders, department leaders for government entities, when we got that information from Dr. Mona, um, we had to respond to it. And we stood by her side uh, at the same time, basically, the state was saying, you know, this is not true um, and pushing back against Dr. Mona. And I think our decision to stand with Dr. Mona was the first key decision that we made in how we ended up responding to the crisis. Mm. Uh, so let's go back to the beginning of the crisis and how it unfolded for you personally. You live in Flint and have a young son. Um, did this affect your family? Yeah. And, and I mean, I want to be clear and I want to really be transparent because I actually went through a divorce during the water crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I got remarried about a year ago, and I'm living in Fenton in a house with five kids, right? <laughs> um, so I ended up selling my house in Flint uh, about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think all of us that are connected to Flint, um, whether whether we were living in the city or our children were attending 
school in Flint, Montessori, early childhood, we're all deeply impacted because, um, you know, my son and I, we're listed on the Flint registry, right? Uh, so that we understand uh, long-term potential health effects. Um, you know, I'm pretty comfortable where I am now in terms of my son's health and my family's health. Um, but I think it's a really personal, deep thing when it affects not only you, but the families that, that you've uh, uh, lived with for so many years. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I talk to people um, who were in Flint at that time, the thing I'm always most curious about is that fear that I think takes over when, when uh, something's happening and you know it could be affecting your family, but you you don't have any control over it, that uh, it's something that uh, the government or a business or uh, some external force is responsible for. You know what's happening, but you don't know what to do. Talk about how that sort of affected you. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the really challenging thing around this crisis is, is that, you know, some homes were affected deeply and some homes might have went through the entire time without much of an impact. And you could actually have houses next to each other that could experience significantly different things. Um, and, and so there's this feeling when you're part of a mass exposure kind of a group of helplessness. Um, and then you lose the trust you have with the institutions that are most keenly there to protect you. And, and we're still in a state five and a half years later where people don't trust those institutions, you know, and how do we rebuild that trust? So we have a, you know, a population that over and over was at the very least, you know, they were lied to, um, told half-truths, um, you know, these partial admissions as we went through the crisis um, that I don't know that is ever going to trust those institutions again. Yeah. And, you know, I'm playing this role with my team at United Way where we completely repurpose our entire staff, you know, take an organization. Um, I worked full time basically on the water crisis and we coordinated that scale response in the United Way office until the emergency declaration was made. And then we became part of working in the emergency operations center full time. I've got a full-time person coordinating volunteers out of the Red Cross building. I've got a full-time, two full-time people trying to manage the development side where we're raising money, taking no administrative cost, and immediately writing out checks basically to cover water and basic needs. Our whole organization was turned on its head. And I will tell you the one thing I'm grateful for is I have a board of directors in Flint made up of a very diverse group of individuals from our community. They let me do that work. They didn't get in our way of our team doing the right thing, um, you know, during that crisis. Yeah. Uh, in the book, uh, Dr. Mona really describes you and your organization as, as uh, you know, side-by-side partners in uh, the way that the response unfolds after everybody understands, you know, that there's, uh, that there's lead in the water. Um, you know, you're standing alongside her uh, for the press conference uh, announcing what was happening. And then she says you're involved in this almost daily conference call uh, <laughs> that, that, that took place um, to, to, to strategize about how to, how to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, we just, we literally, we took an office uh, in, our, in our office space put a conference call, a phone there. And every morning we really start the day getting as many people in the room and as many people on the phone and really evaluate, we, we really list, these are the resources we have. This is the money we've raised. These are the places we can acquire the basic needs support services. And then you got a list on the wall that says, these are the most vulnerable people. 
I mean, everybody was vulnerable at this time, but we're forced to pick and choose who we're going to help first. So, right, women who are pregnant, uh, folks who are nursing babies. I mean, our first move the morning of the announcement with Dr. Mona was to procure truckloads of gallons of water that could be paired with diapers and formula that were being mass distributed in our community through existing channels. And, 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 but every day we're falling short, right? Prior to the declaration, we scale for us was just putting together whatever we could. And thank goodness there were, you know, there were some partners like the labor community, uh, General Motors and the UAW, right? Remember they stopped using the water in their engines before uh, a, a lot of the declarations were made. Mm-hmm. And so they came to the table pretty early. Um, we had people from all over the country that kind of got it. Um, trying to ship water to us and then us trying to distribute it without really being trained emergency response professionals. So right. I got a, it's sort of baptism by fire, <laughs> if you will. Um, um, yeah. I, I mean, you found yourself playing, I, I'm sure, roles that you never imagined you would have to play or that the organization would have to play. Um, there's also an, a passage in the book that describes a heated exchange between you <laughs> and uh, and Harvey Holland, yep. who was the gov- governor's director of urban initiatives, uh, one of the point people there in in Flint. I, I would imagine that those tensions uh, also helped frame yeah. the, the, the the response here. That this was not just okay, we've got to do something, but you've got this sort of uh, uh, question about what role different actors are playing, what role the state is interested in in playing, and uh, you were a little concerned about well, that. Well, you really paint the picture of this visually. Right up until we had this press conference at Kettering University, Dr. Mohn is being essentially vilified. Um, the work that we're doing as United Way is marginalized at best, and they invite us all to this press conference, and you know where we've been sort of on opposite sides of the fence – we get invited to the press conference, and all of a sudden, we're VIPs. <laughs> um, Dr. Mona's research is groundbreaking, um, and and you know the the announcement was made in that press conference. And I'm surrounded by pastors from the community, community leaders, and the state announces that well, we've been working with United Way all along, and this Saturday at the University of Michigan Flint. You know, there was 4,000 filters going to be distributed. And, you know, this is a part of the great work that we're doing here in the community with the United Way. So after the press conference, and, you know, I go back in the back, and this is described, and I put my hand out to Harvey, and I said, Harvey, it's nice to meet you. I'm Jamie Gaskin from the United Way. Apparently, we've been working together for the last two or three weeks, and I didn't know about it. And Harvey looked at me just sort of in this shocking look. And another friend of mine uh, from the from the uh, uh, community of foundations came over and said, hey, Harvey, kind of, you need to chill a little bit. Um, I was angry because we went from this moment of, you know, what you're doing isn't important to all of a sudden we're a champion with you. And it, it just, it was very disingenuous. Was, I mean, there's something really disingenuous about that. Did you, did you feel over time like, the state was more interested in that kind of thing than actually fixing the problem? Or was there a point in which it turned and that they actually became substantive allies? Yeah, well, I I mean, and I want to be very clear. We steered clear of the politics of this the whole time. We did not, there's a role for social activism. Our role at United Way is about basic needs and meeting people where they're at. So we stayed out of that bucket completely. So, you know, from that moment, I guess you could call, we worked with the state 
to leverage all the resources we possibly could in partnership with the state, right? We want to maximize whatever we can get through the state apparatus and through the institutions to help the residents as much as we can. So, I mean, you know, when you get past that moment, we're doing everything we can to work with Harvey and with the state team to try and get as much as we can for Flint residents. Um, the, I mean, the real key moment, I, I have to tell you, uh, is when Mayor Weaver declared the state of emergency, even though she was, in a sense, you could describe her as a marginalized because of the emergency management structure, she stepped out and said, I'm going to declare a state of emergency. The same day the county declared a state of the emergency, and I think by like midnight that night, the governor had changed his tune to declare a state of emergency. You have to follow the state you know, protocol. Everything in the state's got steps one, two, and three. And, and really the bold action uh, around making the declarations and that following right up to the governor, it really forced the state to go all in. Hmm. So once this declaration is made, We've got the National Guard. We've got an emergency operations center being stood up. We've got all of a sudden, you know, all these other resources that we've been fighting for start to come into the community to address the problem. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. My guest is Jamie Gaskin. He is the CEO of the United Way of Genesee County. We're talking about the role that his organization played in responding to the Flint water crisis. Uh, we're talking this summer about Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, which chronicles what happened in Flint to lead up to the water crisis, to deal with the water crisis, and now to continue to deal with the consequences uh, of that water crisis in terms of environmental justice, infrastructure, and a host of other issues. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Let us uh, know what you think about the way that social service agencies were sort of called to task uh, to respond to the Flint water crisis. Uh, if you're somebody who lives in the Flint area, tell us what you think of that response and how helpful it probably was uh, during that time. Uh, also, give us a call. Tell us whether you think uh, you can trust government uh, in the same way you did before the Flint water crisis. Was this a cardinal breach of that sort of contract between uh, government and the governed? Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, um, and we will work you into, uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we break, uh, Jamie, I want to I ask you about um, the sort of um, the, the sort of context in which all of this took place in Flint. Uh, United Way is an organization that had a lot on its plate before the Flint water crisis because of the kind of community that Flint is, very similar to what we have here in Detroit. I, I want you to put the water crisis and the response to it in the context of what Flint was before this and what Flint was challenged by before this happened. You know, I mean, when, as this emerged, we were still a community that was experiencing, um, you know, challenges in our public school system, public safety challenges that were significant, um, economic development issues where people living in the city and their access to what I would call living wage jobs. I think at the time, the average uh, income for households was, you know, twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars in the city. 
Um, so we're one of the most impoverished and challenged cities in the country. Again, like Detroit, um, you know, and the, the crisis really sort of uh, all those things that were challenging us before made the challenge so much more daunting. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I get asked a lot, you know, why did the water crisis happen? And I know you guys have explored this in, in, in depth, but but lack of long term investment with revenue sharing. The emergency manager law, we don't even want to go, you know, that's a whole show Mm -hmm. about how that disenfranchises voters and the singular focus on economic um, um, balancing out as opposed to long-term health consequences and long-term economic um, uh, consequences of behaviors. Um, So you got all those things creating really the perfect storm for Flint um, and making that water crisis intense. I I will tell you that it it did really bring home – hopefully the rest of the country learning from what we're doing. Because in Newark right now, you have a, a significant community that twice the size of Flint in terms of population that's experiencing a very similar water quality challenge that we faced. And we talk with them on a weekly basis to try and, to try and give them the best advice we can about how to, how to handle things in their community. This is, a, this is a serious long-term problem and it was exposed in Flint in a way um, that hopefully the rest of the, the nation can learn from. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jamie Gaskin, who is the CEO of the United Way of Genesee County. And we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll get to your calls next as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Jamie Gaskin. He's the United Way of Genesee County CEO. We're talking about the role that that agency played in responding to the Flint water crisis. Uh, That water crisis is the subject of our WDET book club. We're reading Dr. Monahan Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See, and hosting discussions all around uh, Southeast Michigan about the Flint water crisis, about environmental justice, about infrastructure, all of these issues that spring from the Flint water crisis. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what your thinking is about the long-term effects of the Flint water crisis, not just on environmental issues and infrastructure, but also on this idea of trust in government. Is it possible to rebuild the trust that was broken in a city like Flint uh, when lead became uh, one of the things that was being pumped into people's homes through their faucets? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Michael in Detroit. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Appreciate the show. And uh, I just thought I would share some uh, commentary that came my way uh, when I was in the uh, uh, Southwest. Uh, we were sitting around with some friends that we see periodically and, you know, watching the sunset, smoking a cigar and talking about, you know, what's going on back home. And that one of my group brought up the Flint water crisis. And there was about 12 people there and they all, 
the, the, the Mexicans all turned to us and looked and said, wait a minute, I thought you guys were still worrying about that. It was like five years ago hmm. or whatever. And then they said, look, it, you live in the middle of the largest collection of fresh water on the planet. And if you guys can't figure out, if you guys are too stupid or too corrupt to figure out how to get that to people safely, then that's on you. Hmm. And wow. Wow. the conversation quickly changed topic. But I thought the, uh, uh, the observation from people outside of our local area might be of value to listeners. Yeah, uh, Michael, I really appreciate your calling and uh, sharing that experience. Um, you know, Jamie, that that reminds me that <laughs> that you you still have the challenge uh, of not just meeting the needs of the people in Flint, but probably convincing people that those yeah. needs are still very real and still very deserving of of your attention. Well, I think. Um Everybody wanted, in the, in the water crisis, in the midst of it, um, media outlets from all over the world were picking up snippets of the water crisis and reporting it out, really. In very few environments was there any really in-depth, layered look at all the different aspects of this, right? It's the onion inside an onion inside mm. an onion. Mm. And, and most media doesn't give enough airtime to really exploring it. I, I, my understanding is you guys have done a great job of following this, but I think... You know, that's another example of, of where um, if you talk to a hundred different people from not in Flint, you'll get a hundred different versions of what they think the water crisis was. Mm. And I think we have a real communication challenge about the depth of uh, the layers of this thing. And, and I think that caller's conversation speaks to where some of those differences are. But yeah, we are surrounded by the Great Lakes. We should be able to figure this out. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that you guys did uh, at the United Way uh, was provide grants through the Greater Flint Health Coalition to, to really deal with the long-term consequences of this. Can you talk more about that? Well, so at the beginning of the crisis, we brought together, um, you know, as a, as a community, um, when I would say when I say we, I mean all of us came together ourselves, the Community Foundation, the United Way, the Ruth Mott Foundation, the C.S. Mott Foundation, some of our government partners uh, at the federal level, um, and some local partners that may have been marginalized at the time by this emergency manager law. And, and we all said, you know, if we're going to um, rally resources to support this, we need to do it in a uniform fashion where we're all not fighting against each other for those. Those are the kind of mistakes that, quite frankly, we learned might have been made in places like New Orleans when they got started with, with some of their recovery. And so we all really tried to lay out and work together who's going to fund what. And the United Way squarely fit in immediate basic needs, and the Community Foundation really fit in what are the long-term, long-term needs. So, But around health access, that was a key place um, and communication that we we played a role as part of the crisis. So everything from we you know we 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 um, we help bring together a group of community members to create a what we call the communications subcommittee, and this is made up of Flint residents. And what we try to do on a weekly basis is really bring all the issues to that group, let them filter the information. So we could describe it in a way to community that was much more authentic. And we created the Flint Cares website that a lot of people go to for information. What people don't realize is we didn't brand Flint Cares United Way or any organization. Flint Cares was really founded on the principle that this communication subgroup would inform how we shared information to try and create a space where we had open and, and as, as, as honest information as we could find. Because remember, 
all through this, you've got the EPA with messages, you've got the city with messages, you've got the state with messages, you've got residents in, this, in what I call the environmental justice category, and then you've got you know the Virginia Tech team that did some great work, and you've got Dr. Mona's team doing great work. But in all these cases, the information were, uh, sometimes it would conflict, um, sometimes it was so scientific, quite frankly, that it was hard for the average resident to understand. And, and how do you boil all that down and really communicate as transparently as you can. And, and I will say this, my training is a social worker. I went to Central Michigan University <laughs> in the social work department. How I ended up in this job sometimes, I scratch my head, um, running a business really of helping people at United Way. Um, but that social work background that I had, I like to think informed um, trying to meet residents where they are in the first place. And, and that's, I think, the hardest part through this whole crisis I think we repeated over and over to our partners at the state of Michigan, listen to the residents, um, help them inform the decisions you make, make them a part of the decision-making apparatus um, to help the citizens. And I think in some cases, once the declaration was made, the state did a good job with some of it. And in other cases, it was just like Groundhog Day. Uh, every day we would sort of wake up and tell the state um, um, you know, uh, leaders listen to the residents, engage the residents, do it in a sincere way. Um, but that, that keeps replaying itself um, or had, you know, through the entire administration, um, uh, uh, working with the Snyder administration, it was a change. Mm. It was a challenge. Yeah. <clears throat> um, talk about uh, this. You mentioned earlier uh, the, the role that you're now playing with Newark, uh, which is having its own challenges. <laughs> uh, your experience during the water crisis is really paying some dividends, I suspect, for people in that community. Certainly. I mean, you know, we get calls from folks in Newark, uh, especially, you know, in the case of their United Way reaching out and just saying, can you walk us through what this was like? Where were you successful? Where were your obstacles? You know, how can we play a role um, given that, you know, they have limited resources as we did because there's really not an emergency declaration necessary. I mean, there, there are various stages of this emergency and, and the at-scale response. And so we had the chance to really talk about um, staying away from the politics, um, focusing on the, the basic needs and, you know, where the residents are at themselves, and then the unfortunate task you have of prioritizing who among those residents is most vulnerable to help with your limited resources, right? Believe me, I had people angry with me this whole time of this water crisis because I wasn't able to help everybody. Um, and we really had to take our limited resources and then measure out who was the most vulnerable to try and help them as quickly as we could. And, and we've never had enough resources to fully respond. And that's a feeling of helplessness that, you know, I have as a as, 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 you know, the guy that was, that was really trying to help direct some of these resources. We really had to make hard choices, and so there are always people upset with us when we have to do that. But, you know, we do the best we can, and we try to, we try to redirect people who are angry to the places that really generated the problem and, and remind them. And those, remember, those are the layers and layers of the onion. You can't just say, well, it's because we switched to the water of the river. Well, why do we do that? Well, we had emergency management that probably wasn't doing the, the, the focused on the things emergency management needs to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then we had long-term disinvestment. So you just peel back these layers and, you, and that's how we arrived to where we were at. Yeah. Okay. Jamie Gaskin, CEO of the United Way of Genesee County. It was really great, great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. 
thank you. A pleasure to be here. And anybody out there, I'm always happy to talk about the challenges that we face because we're going to learn from these mistakes that were made so we can be better. Okay. Uh, Remember, 6 p.m. tonight, Ferndale Public Library. Come out and continue the WDET Book Club conversation with us about Dr. Monahanna Atisha's What the Eyes Don't See. We'll be joined by ACLU investigative reporter Kurt Guyette and Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash. Also come back tomorrow and we're going to talk about what rally songs say about presidential candidates candidates and their campaigns. And we're going to take your calls and comments about the songs you associate with politics. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.